All right, everyone. Thank you for coming. Today we're going to be talking about a really awesome topic. It's uh, more than flashing lights, the modern EDM festival experience. It's definitely a hot topic in the world of music right now. We've got an awesome panel of people. We're going to tell you a lot of really interesting things about what's going on, some of the challenges we're facing, how the industry is moving, and a lot more. So I think we'll kick things off by just going down the line, and everyone can introduce themselves briefly. <clears throat> briefly, I'll get started. Uh, my name is Ari Evans. I run one of the biggest electronic music blogs out there called Less Than Three. And in the past year, we've started moving more in a tech startup direction. We're doing a lot of interactive live streams for big concerts and festivals, the biggest of which are probably Ultra Music Festival in Miami and the Electric Daisy Carnival later this year in, in uh, Las Vegas and several others. Hey guys, I'm Mike Feeback. I'm the founder and CEO of Fame House. Uh, we're a digital marketing agency. We work with artists like Eminem and Tiesto running their social media and doing their online marketing, online advertising and websites and online merchandising. Uh, we were acquired by SFX in the fall, so we're a wholly owned subsidiary of SFX Entertainment and we also work with all of their festival brands now like Tomorrow World, Electric Zoo and Mysteryland. Um, my name is Andrew Borgout, and I'm the new buck to this area, or to this panel. Um, I produce a three-day outdoor camping festival at the original grounds of Ray Down the River called Northern Nights Music Festival. We're coming into our second year this year. It's the third weekend in July, and um, putting our heart, soul, and passion into it, so excited to be here. Hey, guys. I'm Alexis Giles. I run business development and legal affairs for Mox TV, which is a 24-7 electronic music channel. So like MTV, we just stole their idea and uh, redid it and no reality TV programming. Um, previously to that, um, I was a co-founder at DJZ. You can see some DJZ boys here. Um, and I was um, did music, content, legal, um, putting fleas up marketing's ass at YouTube and then Google before then. So I've been in the music tech industry for a long time. Very cynical. <laughs> Hi, my name is Rose Kirkland. I'm the senior talent buyer for Live Nation in San Francisco. I book Shoreline Amphitheater, Concord Pavilion, Sleep Train in Sacramento, uh, both the local arenas, Oracle and SAP Center for a lot of our business. Also, uh, the Masonic, which is opening in September. I also co-promote all of the electronic music with Insomniac that comes through the Bay Area. So as you can see, we have a pretty wide variety of perspectives that we're bringing on the panel today. I think we'd like to know what the variety of the audience looks like. So just by show of hands, uh, how many people run startups in the room? Okay. How many are artists? App developers? Promoters? Marketing people? Okay. Pretty nice audience. So I think one of the good things to start off with would be to tell everyone a little bit about how we got to where we are today. Um, Mike, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So um, I got started in the music industry when I was 19. I ran a little record label out of Philadelphia. Um, I moved out here to San Francisco. I uh, went to SF State, uh, did the music industry program there. And while I was in it, uh, I got a job working for DJ Shadow. I ran his web store, built his online presence, built his merchandising business, uh, worked for him for close to five years, um, finished school at night while I was working with him, and then uh, obviously was working with him in the midst of the social media explosion. Um, and other artists started to reach out to me to do their social media and online marketing. Uh, and I, I started Fame House uh, due to that demand, took on Shadow as a client, uh, and then started to work with 
uh, artists like Pretty Lights and Josh Wink, and then that led to art, uh, clients like Shady Records and Eminem. And the company grew from me and a laptop here in San Francisco to a 20-person operation based in Philadelphia, where I'm from, which I, I moved back to Philly to grow the company, uh, to a 20-person operation, and then we sold to SFX. Uh, we're now close to 40 people, um, based mainly in Philly, but we have some people out here in San Francisco as well. So. Um, and I really just fell into the music industry. I mean, I grew up in Marin, uh, went to UC Santa Barbara, and after college, traveled around for a while, and then um, actually started working for a foreign currency broker. Was way too young to be so upset with my job and going to it every single day, and um, by chance fell into producing music events in San Francisco called Black, Pro- Black Productions, B-L-A-P. And so we started just doing really pop-up events that we kind of wanted to curate ourselves, whether that was at Dolores Park or on a yacht or in a warehouse or what have you. We went out and kind of made it, made it happen, and we kind of looked at it like it was a blank canvas. So whether we went into a room and we were saying, hey, we need to figure out the talent that's necessary, the sound that's necessary, what is the experience that we want to create? And that led to being able to produce uh, the Snow Globe After Parties in 2010, or actually I met Alexis Jowles for the first time. We had Median. And then from there, kind of continued to build, did Winter Salt at Fort Mason Pavilion um, with IRSF, and then kind of continued to uh, go through, figure out a way to make this work, to make the, the music industry work. And one of, uh, reggae on the river was one of our passions. I used to listen to, I still listen to a lot of reggae music, and that kind of, that dropped off, and we found the opportunity to produce a three-day outdoor camping festival at the original grounds of Reggae on the River. Last year was the first year we did it. We produced the whole thing within three months. We're coming back this year stronger, and uh, yeah, really excited to be here. Um, so I'll date myself now. I first fell in love with music when I went to the Hacienda in Manchester at the age of 16, so no one do the back calculations on how old I am, because I will deny it to the hilt. Um, and then went to be an attorney um, in the quaintly named computer law. I did computer law. That's back in the first internet bubble, like back in 99. Uh, went to work for AOL when everything crashed, because AOL was the future. Um, not so much um, and uh, my, face, my first foray into music was when AOL were doing sessions at AOL so I started doing all the sessions contracts the labels they, we then did Live 8 which was mind-blowingly stressful I think it's the first time anyone had ever live it wasn't really live but we kind of live streamed it um, which we weren't really prepared for how many people would watch that event on a worldwide basis but that was fantastic the seeing the actual event set up, built up from start to finish, and actually doing all the agreements back end just really lit my passion for, for music and for live events and for technology and how I could bring those together. So then I went to Google to be a total nerd um, and just did uh, music and entertainment there, just helping them uh, when we acquired YouTube, launch YouTube. Um, and I just realized they, there was potentially, and I think we still see this today, it's not so bad. We were talking about this earlier. There's a real disconnect sometimes between the technology industry and the music industry, as in they don't speak the same language. They're used to hating each other. You know, everyone's like, oh, the music doesn't get technology, and technology's like, music doesn't get... Anyway, enough of that. But I was there. I could bridge the gap because I spoke tech, I spoke music, and I really wanted to help companies connect with the music industry and vice versa. So I left Google two years ago to really move that forward. So fingers crossed. I uh, grew up in Marin as well, across the bridge in a town called Bolinas. And my best friend's father was Danny Rifkin, who's one of the managers of Grip Debt. So I grew up knowing that the music industry was something people could work in and always was my goal to work in it. I went to SF State and my uh, last year before I graduated, I interned at what was then BGP. 
and became Live Nation shortly after I started interning. I got hired a month before I graduated, and I've been with them for eight years now. Started as an intern, now I'm the senior talent buyer. So it's been, you know, quite a few jobs in between, but I've worked my way up, and I love it. I love every day of it. Um, a couple years ago, when kind of there was this EDM boom, we decided that we would throw uh, a two-day EDM festival, and I'd never booked anything near that, and I booked I Love This City, which some of you may have heard about or may not have heard about. Uh, it never happened again, <laughs> but it was quite the experience. It definitely taught me a lot about what this job can be and the successes and the massive failures when you jump into something that you don't really understand. But, um, you know, in a partnership with Insomniac now, I've learned a lot more. You know, they're interesting to work with. It's a lot of fun, and definitely uh, that's one part of my job. I also book everything from Mark Anthony to Broken Bells to the Backstreet Boys. I have two shows this weekend with the Backstreet Boys. So, you know, I'm definitely all over the place when it comes to the music industry in general. But one of my focuses is electronic music. Great. Thanks, everyone. So, Andrew, I figured we'd start with you. You know, uh, a lot of... A fest, throwing a festival is kind of like creating your own startup. You know, there's actually a lot of similarities in doing that. You want to talk to us a little bit about, like, your day-to-day and the process that it's been to get you to where you are now? Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, that's the way we really look at it. We look at it as this is a, this is a startup, but we're in the limelight a lot more. So, I mean, we started really with an idea. And, I, I mean, I found Northern Nights Music Festival by literally getting in my car and going to the properties. Um, property owner's house and knocking on doors in Humboldt, California, which uh, I found out later I wasn't really supposed to be doing. But, uh, you know, I just was very determined to come in there and find the original Grounds of Reggae on the River, find out why this, this festival wasn't happening anymore. And, um, you know, from there, once we had the, the property secure, we were able to kind of go and start a business plan. And um, one of my business partner actually has a, a PhD in structural engineer. He just graduated um, a couple years ago and said, hey, now that we have this venue, I'm going to quit what I'm doing, working for NASA, and we're going to come, we're going to build this mini city in the Redwoods next to a river. And, um, you know, really just kind of really a lot of hard work, a lot of passion, a lot of time goes into it. And every single day that we're, we're going through it, it's like, what hat are we going to wear today? Are we going to deal with legal today? Are we going to be dealing with booking talent today? And we've been able to build a team around that to um, really grow this thing to where it's coming back this year. We have a better lineup. We have um, really the opportunity to come in and stake our claim in Northern California and possibly on the West Coast as one of the unique premier boutique uh, camping festivals out here. Right. So in the back room, we were talking a little bit about um, just how it's been getting all that up and running and the challenges of the day-to-day. there's this interesting thing going on where, you know, your event is based in San Francisco, clearly a tech hub. Um, although your event, you know, you kind of try to decide how much tech influence do you want to have there. If you don't have the tech influence there, how do you use technology in order to augment your event and get it out to the public? Can you speak a little to that? Right. I mean, that's one of the constant kind of struggles we go back and forth is that, I mean, one of the one of the real selling points or one of the real experiences that people go there is that they're going to be immersed with the people that are there for 72 hours because there's not cell phone service. There's not Internet. And so being a startup festival, it's it's is it important for us to bring in Wi-Fi and to bring in apps so that you don't have to carry around cash um, and take photos and then have that, you know, it's like you go to Coachella and everyone there is watching the show through their phone. But you come to Northern Nights and you're there and you're going to meet uh, a community of people that you're going to, you know, be in contact with for the next 365 days. So it's one of those things we're still trying to figure out for this year if we're going to bring in Wi-Fi or not. 
Yeah, so Mike, how is uh, the digital landscape changing for as far as promoting events and getting the word out there? What are you seeing in your world? I, mean, I definitely think there's oversaturation on the typical ways of getting the word out there on Twitter and Facebook and the typical social media tools. So you have to be innovative in bring in partners and um, blog partners like Less Than Three, or um, we're working with a, another one called EDM.com right now is another cool one for, for festival promotion. So um, I think it's just about doing some doing it differently. You have to do the typical you know Facebook posts and engagement campaigns on social media, but um, getting more innovative with um, pixeling and retargeting has been very effective for us, um, and then also doing innovative partnerships online, and then also using platforms like SoundCloud and, you know, um, social media tools that typically wouldn't necessarily be used for festival marketing and and, and making noise in a different way. And I think that um, to your point about the 364 days a year when the festival's not happening, we really try to build a brand for the festivals that we market and make sure that there's discussion going on all year round so that when it comes time to go on sale, there's already a discussion happening and people are ready to click that buy button. I think that's totally important. Um, what I've seen um, increasingly now, there's lots and lots of, especially dance music festivals, is people are coming to us at mocks and they're actually giving us their um, their recap videos um, in, in advance of them announcing the lineup because they want to start engaging people again, remembering how good it was last year. I mean, anyone who's seen the ultra recap video... It's incredible. It always brings tears to my eyes. Like, oh my god, it's so good! I've got to buy my tickets now. Um, and they're they're using the content that they're producing at these festivals, whether it's audio, whether it's video, whether it's social media content that people are creating while they're there, whether it's Instagram feeds like you you feature in the interactive, um, and they're using that to engage their audience for the other you know 361 or whatever days of the year that they're not there. And I think if you're building tech or apps in this environment is it it's it behooves you to think not only about the experience at the festival but these brands are all fighting for limited dollars and there is limit i mean okay it's a four billion dollar industry worldwide there are a lot of players in this industry there are a lot of players with a lot of money there are a lot of players with who are independent and really create that experience but if you can give them tools and build tools that enable them to engage their fans and maybe monetize their fans and their their brand a little bit better whole year round then you will have tools that people will use yeah, that's a great. I think there's always room for disruption in reaching fans in new ways, and that's. I think there's a lot of room still, especially in the festival space, for building tools for connecting with fans online. Right. So in the festival space, you know, we're talking to this notion of building a brand. I think that's one of the most important things. Rose, we were talking in the back about you know working with Insomniac and how powerful of a brand that is, and the kind of things, some of the trade-offs of kind of extending the brand, maybe taking some losses or having a loss leader in order to keep that brand going. Um, what's that? How's that been working, and how's it working for Insomniac? Well, I don't work specifically for Insomniac. They're partners of ours, so I wouldn't want to speak directly for them. But my experience um, with, you know, we can talk about Beyond Wonderland, which is an event um, that was brought to the Bay Area two years ago. And first they did it in the Oracle Arena parking lot. And I went to that show before we were partners, and I thought it was okay. It kind of seemed like nothing that special. And it was the first Insomniac show I'd ever been to, so I was really excited to go. And when I went, I was kind of like, okay, you know, this is all right, but it's not what I expected. And I expected it to be this, you know, really over-the-top event. And last year we brought it to Charlotte Amphitheater into our parking lot, and they really went all out the second year, and the production was incredible, and they had this massive caterpillar on the main stage that moved around and, you know, smoked out of this pipe. And, you know, I've done hundreds of shows at that amphitheater, and if somebody had put me in that parking lot and told me it was our amphitheater parking lot, I would have been like, this isn't our amphitheater parking lot, what are you talking about? Because 
the experience was so immer- like you were just so immersed by it and looking you know at that experience and when you have such a massive production, um, it costs a lot. It's not a cheap thing to do. So you really are investing in these fans and you're investing in the experience. And so that's something that you want to you know, be able to do year after year is bring these same kids back. And you, that's kind of how sometimes you have to take your losses. Is on the first year, you're going to lose a little bit of money by having this really grand experience. And you still want to do something great the next year, but it's really showing the kids what you're capable of. And you know, the kids... The kids, I shouldn't call them the kids, but you know, the people who come to these shows, they're looking for an experience, and that is a big part of Insomniac. Is um, you know, Pasquale, who is the CEO of Insomniac, he's about creating experiences, and so it goes beyond the music. So, another thing that we talked a lot about is with these over the top festivals, is it always about the music, or sometimes is it also really about the experience? And does it matter who's on the show, or is it just what the experience is going to be like when you get there? Right, so EDC, I mean, there's, they're a great example. They actually haven't even put out the lineup yet, and the event is in 30 days, and it's completely sold out. It sold out a month ago. Right. So, yeah, is there going to be disappointment when the people, you know, when the lineup is announced, or is everybody just going to be excited that they're still going? That's always, like, as a promoter, where you have to kind of balance that of you want to book something that everybody wants to see, and... But what, what is that? You know, in advance, you kind of have to figure it out and you have to balance between, you know, what we all call kind of like EDM music and then also doing more of like, you know, underground guys or what I, we were talking in the room before this. I like to call it dance music because EDM kind of has to a certain degree become such an ugly word. You say EDM and some people, you know, will kind of like be like, oh, I don't want to be involved in that. But if it's dance music, to me, that just is a little bit more palatable. <laughs> right. <laughs> So how do we communicate the experience and how do we kind of keep it in the mind share, you know, year round, 365 days? Anyone have any thoughts on this? Sell lots of merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing we haven't talked about as well as merch. Merch is a huge, um, it's, it's a really big aspect of these events. That I think people are still trying to figure out how to monetize fully. Like, I think the merch market is a huge untapped market for festivals, for artists, um, and it's such a big upfront cost right now for people to actually decide the design, figure out whether it's going to work for everyone, and then actually get the T-shirts printed, and then hope to God at EDM festivals, you know, the 3,000 kids on Molly are actually going to go by the merch table, be able to get their purse out and buy a T-shirt. You're like, please, God. But um, that's something I think is right for disruption right now in that space. Really but I think it's also community, right? So I think all of these major festivals, the ones that are really successful, it's about community. People who go to Coachella go to Coachella every year. Mm-hmm. And it's with the same people they go. They have their houses or their campsites or whatever, and they you know name their groups of friends. And that's how it is 365 days a year, is that you spend all of that year preparing to go. Or if it is Burning Man, it's the same thing. You know, My friends who go to Burning Man, it's an entire year of planning and getting that all together. I, I believe any really successful massive festival, it has to be about community. It has to be about the experience. It has to be about people wanting to go over and over again. And you can't sell an experience that doesn't actually exist. You have to actually have the festival be that much fun. You know, you have to put like lay the groundwork for it to be what all what it's been the year before and the year before. And content, sorry, yeah, Co- content. I mean, 
after movies and you know mm-hmm. highlighting great user generated content and that's what's going to keep it living you know the rest of the year and i think that that's festival brands are just starting to understand the value of their content and and actually leveraging it for brand deals and for live streaming and for archives of the live streams to to watch the rest of the year and you know i think that um the goal is to get to something like edc or tomorrowland or coachella and to get there you have to have an amazing experience at the festival you have to have amazing marketing and you have to have incredible content that can live all year round that people want to keep going back to and, and viewing yeah, EDC last year we did um, a um, Mox did a, a a travel series with Virgin America. So we had a film crew in. We filmed what it was like to be artists at the festival, and then what it was like to be an an, a, an attendee as, as a, um, in some net call them headliners as an attendee of the festival. And that content then went on Virgin America, Virgin Atlantic, Virgin Australia. So the EDC brand kind of lived on in places you really never would have thought. It would, I was like, really, people really want to watch some planes? They were like, yeah, absolutely. This is really popular. So it's, I think brands and, and festivals are really starting to think about where they can place that content to bring even more people into the brand and sort of recognize what they're doing. And so build an awesome brand, create a great experience around it, and then expose that as far as you can. seems mm-hmm. to be one of the main messages that's coming through here. Um, let's switch topics slightly to a little bit more of a tech focus. Um, Rose, you know, in the booking world, I know it's pretty hard to get booked into you know a festival, especially if you're up and coming. What kinds of tools or what kinds of metrics are you looking at to identify who should be brought on board? Well, I mean, I don't I don't book a ton of festivals, but I mean, I think it kind of is the same across the board, no matter what you're booking. One, I I do believe that you have to have a certain knack for the industry. We always say that you can't really learn to be a booker. Some people think that they can, but you have to have an understanding of the marketplace. So for me, I book specifically in San Francisco. I grew up here. That's helpful. So I understand what the marketplace is. I understand who the people are in the greater Bay Area, what they want to see to a certain degree. That's just a baseline. Then, you know, for me, it is, you know, sometimes it's as simple as you look on Facebook, how many followers do they have? You know, you look at SoundCloud, you look at all of those things, you talk to people. I'm not above calling, you know, depending on what the artist is. And again, I said, it's not for me, it's not just EDM, it's everything. You know, you reach out to radio stations, you ask other people. Like, you, you have to be, to be a good book, you have a, to be humble enough sometimes to know what it is you don't know and reach out to resources of people who do. Right. And for us, I mean, that's the, you know, we're, we're constantly struggling with trying to live within our budget for booking talent. I mean, this year we're fortunate enough to get Beats Antique, and that was based on relationships that we've had with agents that they know that if we're going to put Beats Antique on a bill to anchor this in Northern California, that the production's going to be right, that the sound's going to be right, that the quality of the experience is going gonna to be organized. So those are relationships that we've built year after year after year that we continue to leverage now as we get more, more video and we get more photos and we have more people there talking about the event and artists have come last year. And when, when we are booking, it's, if it's a new band that we haven't worked with or a new act that we haven't worked with, we can look at their Facebook, we can look at their social media, um, SoundCloud, but we also you know, look at their Polestar and see what they've done in the region. And then we mix that with a lot of local up-and-coming DJ producers and bands that can also go to their audience and their friends and vouch for this festival and say, hey, I'm going to be there and I'm going to be excited about going. Because the biggest problem we had last year is that all we had was this blank, empty uh, festival site campground that we were kind of going off the nostalgia of reggae on the river in the past 
And so this year we have a few more photos. So that was one thing that, I, I mean, I guess I, I wish we would have done better was do have more photos so more people can see what it's going to be like to actually be on the river and then imagine themselves there. And that, that also goes over to booking as well. And um, really it's just building the relationship with the artists and the agents and the managers to say, hey, this is going to be a good play for you. It's not going to be in front of 20 people in the Redwoods and, you know, the power is going to break down and your sound sounds shitty. So I know this might be a delicate subject, but, <clears throat> you know, we have limited metrics to look at. And we've got guys like Mike who are being paid to go and build those metrics up as, as much as possible. And there is a little bit of gaming the system that I'm sure is going on. Not with us. <laughs> I swear to God, it's all we <laughs> uh, Andrew, is there any way that you found uh, to break through and kind of tell if something's like real or not so to speak i mean a little bit on facebook if you if you see like facebook if, if it's bought if they're from san francisco and you go on there and a uh, majority of their likes are in mexico or india or whatever you can kind of see it but um you know for the most part i mean you can you can kind of tell more if they're sincere you can also look at their friends and whatnot um to kind of see it but that's about it what, right. what's, the, what's the most important statistic for you there? What, what really carries weight? Is it, I mean, is it a bit of everything with a bit of balance? Or are you like, uh, unless you have 100,000 Facebook fans, we're not talking to you? It's if we like the music and we can talk about it and we can sell it to our friends and our family and our people. If, if we're into it, we're going to be able to, I mean, because this is like really, I mean, it's a business of passion and what we enjoy doing. So if this festival is, you know, I, I mean, we have our core team that comes in and we all kind of have our favorites for this year and then we all kind of once we figure out avails we see what you know do we like it do we like it are we are our friends gonna like it are people gonna come out and have a good time and enjoy it and it's kind of they also are representing the brand of the music festival as well to ensure that the music is in line with the brand so speaking to these you know campaigns to get exposure for artists mike is actually part of one of the coolest activations for an artist ever with pretty lights with the BitTorrent bundle. Maybe you can tell people what that was like. Sure. Um, it was actually one of the things that got us noticed that eventually got us in the door with SFX. We did a, we did a partnership between Pretty Lights and BitTorrent. This was two and a half years ago. So Pretty Lights' business model is giving all of his music away for free. And um, This was early on before a lot of people were doing that. And BitTorrent is obviously a community of music lovers that love free music. And um, we partnered Pretty Lights with BitTorrent and basically promoted Pretty Lights in the install path of BitTorrent. So anyone who downloaded the BitTorrent software, or updated their software, saw a promotion for Pretty Lights music. Uh, we drove 6 million downloads in a couple weeks, increased his audience size significantly, I think by 20% on Facebook within a few weeks, increased his, almost doubled his email list. Um, so, you know, speaking to the currency of social media and email lists and audience and how that plays into their what they're able to get to play a festival um, that's how we can value our services we say that you know if you bring us on we're going to brand you and market you online and it's going to increase it's going to increase merch sales and a lot of times we're actually handling handling the online merch we do all of m&m's online merch and pretty lights is so that's a direct revenue stream that we can point to but we also are going to help you get you know, higher booking fees. So, sorry, guys. <laughs> well, and also, I, for us, branding is a big part of it. You know, like, I co-promote as for, with Live Nation all of my electronic shows with Insomniac. And we always brand it as Insomniac Presents. I was actually just read an email before this. We have a show announcing tomorrow. And they were like, oh, where do we put the Live Nation logo? And I'm like, I don't put the Live Nation logo on these shows because that audience 
relates to insomniac. And then also, when, you know, when we're doing mailers and all of that, when we're e- doing email blasts and that type of stuff, we always go to local promoters as well because coming from, you know, a Live Nation newsletter, like you're looking at that for Journey, you're looking at that for Steve Miller, you're looking at that for, you know, that our audience is, our target, the audience that gets our newsletter is looking for those shows. They're not looking for the dance shows. So as a good marketer for these types of shows, you have to know who has your audience if you don't have it yourself. I think it's interesting as well, like um, having been doing this as long as I have, and it's it's kind of turned it around. So when music streaming services um, started launching and everyone was like, no, thou shall never give away your music for free. There's a value associated with we'll lose revenues. And now because of the potential that artists can make at events and at festivals and because of the proliferation of these events, now it's a perfectly legitimate marketing employer to give your music away for free because you know that you're going to make that revenue stream back probably times 10 or 100 compared to the revenues you can get from actually trying to sell it to, to a limited audience. And not, I, not lo- only I love that, it. I think it's brilliant. I mean, the audience itself is valuable to brands, you know, and, and you know this because you're doing branded activations for streaming. And, you know, if you've got a million fans on Facebook, you know, Pretty Lights, as an example, has got close to a million fans on Facebook. That's something that a brand is going to be interested in if you're doing a deal with them. And that's, it's, you know, it's looking at, it's audience monetization mm-hmm. is really the next chapter of revenue streams, I think. And if, you know, for the app developers and entrepreneurs in the room, I think that's the next real disruption in the music industry is how do you monetize an online audience? You know, how do you do that legitimately? How do you do it within Facebook's terms and conditions and Twitter's terms and conditions and email, within email terms and conditions and policies and do it legitimately that, cause that, that's real scale and real audience that, it's you know for a brand versus buying ads on Facebook, mm-hmm. it can be way more relevant to reach an audience through an artist's channels. You know, so I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the next few years. Yeah, I'd really like to reiterate that point. I think there's tons of it's we're describing. It's kind of like the Wild West right now. Just to give you guys a clear example that can elucidate this point, um, Tomorrowland was the second most watched live event on YouTube ever, second to the Royal Wedding. I mean, there's like mega, mega views going in this direction. And so far, you know, in your physical world events, you have, uh, you have your festivals and you have your sponsorship dollars. But online, now we're seeing really the live content uh, type take off. And the digital sponsorship money is actually tiny in relation to the real world sponsor dollars. Mm-hmm. So big opportunity there for someone to come in and figure that out. And the audience is so much bigger. Yeah, the so audience much is so bigger. much bigger. And so much more diverse. Yeah, I mean, in the case of Ultra Music Festival, which happened in March, there were uh, 165,000 people there and 10 million people watching it online. Yeah, I think we were talking earlier about whether or not, you know, promoters want to show their festivals online if they think that's going to take away from the audience. Like, if you can see it online, are you still going to come? And I think that we all agreed that it actually... Makes it makes people want to go. People who sit at home and they watch so and so at Coachella or whatever, they aren't suddenly going, "Oh, this is cool. I can just do this next year." They're going, "Fuck, I better save up so I can go next year because that looks like so much fun, and I'm not there." Right. I mean, I think we're we really are in the middle of a consumption revolution too. I mean, everything's going to streaming. You know, Apple's going to buy Beats. I think. Um, you know, Spotify. Is that, is that a confirmation? I don't know. I, I don't know. But <laughs> YouTube uh, and Twitch, and, and um, you know, everything's going to streaming with video. You know, Netflix is exploding. Spotify is exploding for streaming audio. So, you know, there's a lot of potential to disrupt right now around that and around people expecting to see things online and brands just starting to understand the value of that. 
Definitely. It's, it's interesting that you actually get the point, like Ari, you said before in the room, that you know sometimes when you're going to talk to these promoters, they're like, well, it might cannibalize my uh, audience. And like, you have a limited number of people based on the permit you have for your audience. You're selling out every year. Do you want to add 10 million people to that? Or, you know, people aren't going to be like, oh, you know what? I don't want to go to Burning Man this year. I've been for the last 10 years, but I can see it on the computer now. It's fine. I'll just, just, I would, because it looks really hot and dusty. Um, <laughs> but I've never been to Burning Man. So um, I, I don't, I, I think it's, it's retarded of them to be like, well, it's, you know, you have 10 million people we can attach sponsorship dollars to, which I, I imagine that once someone works in the digital space, they never get back. So it seems like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of change happening, consumption, you know, all these viewership changing and all that. Um, it seems like we're maturing kind of as an industry where certain pieces are getting more figured out. And now it's really about like innovative marketing campaigns. You're thinking of your event as there's this pre, there's a during, there's a post. I know we were talking about that backstage, Mike. Um, what kinds of pieces go into those different stages and kind of making an event successful over time? I think you'd be good to talk yeah, about yeah. that. When you guys d- growing so much last, last year to this year, how did you guys go from being, you know, a first year festival to more than doubling in your second year? Well, I mean, really, the way that we were able to do it was we were we were able to convince our close networks to come up, and it's it, it, you know, it's one of those things now that we have um, we have the pictures and we have the video and we have the experience that have, the word of mouth is going to sell a million more tickets than anything else. And if I go to my friend and like you have to come with me next year, and I'm going to bring two, you know, I'm going to bring one, two people more. I mean, that's really what we we knew last year we were gonna, you know, it was going to be rocky road. And one thing that we did not want to to look at the bigger picture and see where we were going to grow this, we didn't want to lack on any of the production or the experience once people got there. So we wanted to make sure that everything ran smoothly so that people would get back to the Bay Area, they would go to Humboldt, and we actually had about. Sixty percent of our people from the Bay Area, so I um, mean, a lot of those people were had come to Blap events, or they come to, uh, they knew us, or they knew a friend, and they were like, "All right, cool, we're going to pay the 150 bucks, travel three and a half hours to go up there and and be a part of this." And then they had the greatest time of their life, and then now they're talking about their friends about doing it this year. And now, really, what we're focusing on as a brand is getting the tickets this year, but also looking at the bigger picture. So we bring in more video, we bring in more um, photographers, and bring in. Just the post event. I mean, the post event wrap up, so that we can, you know, figure out a way that you know whether we release sets once a week or or, or release different post videos and kind of relive it through the social media channels and online as well is going to be key for us to be to really find our identity coming into the third year next year. I think the production is interesting as well. Like we, I think the name is Palace. It's not about flashing lights, but if you look at the and I think people often forget this, unless, you, unless you've been backstage at one of these things and you see the amount of work that goes into, I don't know, Skrillex's spaceship. Everyone's like, wow, the spaceship just appeared and it's amazing, it goes up and down. And then you see it has like a team of 50 people behind it. You've got videographers, you've got incredible lighting technicians who are so talented, who are mixing it live. Um, and I think that we, we forget that aspect of tech for a festival, which is really important, which goes into the overall experience. And, you know, when you're spending on production, people are really emotionally attached to that because they go and they've seen the, the caterpillar with a hookah pipe or they've seen a huge owl at EDC or, you know, and it's, it's, it's a really important aspect of technology that we, we forget about, I think, when we're talking yeah, about something else. Yeah, the production's definitely pushing the industry forward. I mean, in general, I think it's one of the things that differentiates EDM festivals. Um, what do we think is EDM festivals? There's definitely a different character about them. Maybe people can speak to what's different. I think that that's another place for disruption. I mean, 
well, first of all, someone's got to figure out the Wi-Fi issue, right? So you need, to have, you need to have connectivity at the event without your phone dying too quickly and without, you know, battery issue, I guess, is the second one. And then, you know, there's, there's so much. Once that gets figured out, there's so much you can mm-hmm. do at the festival with your device. I mean, and that, that, that's just getting tapped into because of the fact that everyone's scared to do it because of the Wi-Fi issue. Mm-hmm. So if you, can, if you can solve the Wi-Fi issue, that's going to open up the door for so many innovative things with apps at festivals. Yeah, it's the most mind-blowing thing in the world that they can't figure out Wi-Fi at festivals. Yeah. Does, it, does anyone know why? <laughs> like, isn't it like a case it's of bringing expensive. a cell tower in or something like that? <laughs> I was like, can't you just figure out? That's a good sponsorship. Like, if you've got the best Wi-Fi experience in the world and you were like, 7-Up made it happen, I love 7-Up, yeah. um, you'd be like, that's a brand affiliation for life. And I think that's how it's going to get figured out. Uh-huh. I'm pretty yeah. sure. I mean, for again, for entrepreneurs in the room, watch for the timing of this. It's probably going to shift pretty soon. It's, it's an egg that people have been trying to crack for a long time, the Wi-Fi connectivity stuff. It's, it's going to get solved in the next year. Definitely. So start thinking up those app ideas for sure. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. Like um, we we talked a bit in the um, in the thing about the payment, the first cashless festival, the RFID thing. Was it Mystery Land last weekend or tomorrow? This weekend, uh, Mystery Land. Yeah. And then just it, I haven't heard it. You know, I heard that everyone was able to buy things because like, I was interested. I was like, "Ooh, that could go really, really horribly wrong." I um, hope it doesn't. Yeah, I've I had it go horribly too. wrong. Yeah. I, did, I, I hope it didn't, because like, I've been at festivals, like I think I was at Hard Summer, which is a fantastic event. All the ATMs went down because they lost signal. And so you've got people, they're not taking cards at bars, they're just taking cash. No one can buy drinks. So I was like, I'm going to say, I can't, I can't be doing with this. Same way I went to Oysterfest, which is a great little festival, local festival last weekend. Four ATMs, and everyone took cash. And I was like, this, this is, I'm in San Francisco, I'm in Silicon Valley. And I feel like, you know, someone's asked me for gold bars. I've got to go and dig out of the ground. You know, it's that hard <laughs> to go. It, it was retarded. And I was like, why isn't someone testing something here that could just be really amazing? So I'm looking forward to new and interesting ways of payment systems. And then also new and interesting ways to sort of exchange content that you're creating at these festivals. I mean, I'm totally sick of going to festivals and just staring at the back of people's phones. That drives me mental. Um, so if you stood in front of me at a festival and you find us up, I will probably push it out of my way. <laughs> Sorry about that. About yeah, there, there's, there's definitely going to be a lot of false starts, I'm, I'm sure, as, as this all gets figured out. But in general, and you're also actually countering another issue, which is that not all promoters believe that the answer is to have fans with, you know, on their phones the whole time. And so how do you kind of strike a balance between that? Um, have we seen any anything that has worked well at events? I mean, I, we don't have a lot of con- connectivity, um, but... How do we foresee that playing out and that conversation playing out with promoters? How are we going to find the right balance there? Sorry, I must do Camera's a water promoter. situation. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I was just saying that, you know, there's this, there's this kind of demand, or at least we think there's a demand, to kind of push and make these apps so that people can be more connected and do more things at these events. But we also have the promoters, which don't really want this experience where everyone's kind of looking at their phone the whole time while they're there. How do we deal with that? I, mean, I think it's tricky because of the whole Wi-Fi situation anyways. So I think that's one of the reasons that people don't... You know, everybody makes an app for their festival that's fairly basic, that just kind of gets you around the festival. But I think to invest to the next level of it, all of this other stuff would have to be figured out. You know, because it would be a big investment on the promoter's part to invest in something that's not actually going to work at their festival. And it's interesting, because you do get, like, in most festivals, you have a proprietary app. And then they also, the price trap is usually, you know, that it's just thrown together, there's a map on it, there's, yeah. you know, where to find the bathrooms, you know, measure exits, and they don't work well sometimes because, you know, of signal, but then it's also fighting for space 
with every other app that you have that you actually use socially with your friends. So it's fighting with your Facebook, with your Instagram, with you know your Vine, with everything else. And it, it makes no sense why they're not integrated into that festival app. Like, I think it's starting to happen a little bit more, at least. The Mystery Land app, which we're working on, uh, has Instagram integrated. So it's a wow, step in the awesome. right direction. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> So there's something there's there's something though that's that's different about these EDM festivals that's catching so much attention, right? We saw at Coachella this year, uh, Calvin Harris had the second largest crowd ever in Coachella history. Um, what is it that's changing now, and how are the mainstream festivals, or the traditional ones, adjusting to this new EDM craze? Well, I think that Calvin Harris is a pop artist, and I think that that's part of the difference. Is you know, I was at Coachella the first weekend this year, and it was pretty mind blowing to see how big his audience was. I was shocked, to be totally honest, and not that I don't understand the value of Calvin Harris, but I think that it's just a very like palatable kind of music. I think that everybody can go and see Calvin Harris and have a dance party, including Paul McCartney no joke you know when you see Paul McCartney dancing to Calvin Harris you're like oh everybody likes it you know so I think that it's just I think it's an easy buy and I think it's a good investment nobody's like not nobody but very few people are going to go and see something like Calvin Harris and not have a good time because inevitably he's going to play songs you know because all the music that he plays isn't his own and I think that's what makes it so you can have acts like that at a massive festival that might play to like during Calvin Harris Motorhead was playing some people went and saw Motorhead. Most people watch Calvin Harris. How long do you think it'll last that the DJ will be at this level? The headliner? Whether, yeah. I mean, I think it, it'll be interesting to see. You know, I think that um, a while longer. I think that we're kind of at the beginning of this. I don't think that we're near the end of this being a big deal. I mean, Coachella's definitely taken that turn you know Coachella arguably the biggest festival in the world you know as like there's not a festival that an artist more wants to be on than Coachella we are here as a promoter well I, my band has to play Coachella that's pretty much every band that's ever existed either DJ or band has to play Coachella it is that ultimate goal and um, you look at you know Swedish House Mafia was really where they made that turn when Swedish House Mafia played Coachella it was the biggest laser show that ever happened on the entire planet, you know? And that was part of it. It's not just about the music. It's about the production. It's about the experience. And I think when Coachella took that turn, there was no going back. I think also there's been a lot more crossover from dance music artists into the mainstream, you know, with a collaborate. They're very collaborative. That's why dance music has lasted as long as, long as it has. You know, they're an extremely collaborative community. They're very close. Um, I think... More mainstream artists out of different genres have seen the the rise of dance music and so have, have gone in on collaborations and so the mainstream is being played on radio. People like Elvin Harris, people know what it is. So rather than there being very distinct lines between genres anymore, it's like, oh, I'm only into, you know, I'm only into dance music or I'm only into rock I think people consume because music is more available to them they're more likely to consume a vast range of music and so they will go and see Calvin Harris and maybe pop over for two songs at Motorhead and then come back to Calvin Harris but because he's playing such a, a wide range of different musical genres everyone can enjoy it so you can take all your friends and someone's not like oh, I want to go to Motorhead and you're like well, off you go um, but I think you'll consume I think dance music artists said, like you said like the Swedish Test Mafia show was amazing Skrillex show is amazing I think they're continuing to set expectations and standards in live productions I mean I've, I've seen Metallica live a bunch of times I think they're amazing live I'm, I would love to see them with a bunch of crazy lasers as well as all the explosions <laughs> of fire you know I, th- I think dance music artists because they, they don't have you know your traditional four guys on a stage jumping around it could be one guy behind a digital unit they, they've had to really up their game to make it very entertaining and I think they're setting the standard it'll be interesting to see what happens in other genres 
do we think that there are any negative effects that are coming along with this? You know, what about the guys who are left out? There are actually a number of artists who are complaining, kind of everyone's in the Sahara tent doing drugs and dancing, and they're not watching my set. What kind of impact does that have? Still got paid. Like, <laughs> <laughs> get more fans. Like, talk to Michael. <laughs> You're never going to be able to control that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's I, I think that... You know, I've never heard. I really, actually, I haven't ever heard a band say that. Who knows? Maybe I'm, you know, the minority there. But I think that thing about music is that I think that there's something for everybody, and there's an audience for everybody. You know, anybody who's booked on these major festivals, somebody wants to see them. They're not there without a reason. Uh-huh. So you know, it just you can't control who your audience is. Whoever buys the tickets, or whoever buys the tickets. When you're dealing with a festival, that's always going to be the case. You can't. You don't have the target audience that you're like. Oh, let's make sure we have this many fans for this artist. Let's make sure we have this many fans for this artist because that's never going to happen. And that is, I think, where like social media and all of that does take a play in it. Is that you know, the more you hear about about an artist the more likely there's buzz about it the more likely that you want to go see it and a lot of that is based off of something like you probably do you know where you're pushing that artist and making sure over and over again you're beating the kids over the head that they exist and then they're like oh i heard that name and whether they've ever heard they've ever heard the music they have to go see it because they've heard people talk about it I think also if you look at um, what companies like Insomniac are doing with their artist discovery project, like they're really trying to genuinely um, find and curate and encourage new talent to, to come up. I mean, A, I don't think it's entirely, um, what's the word? They're not, you know, it's not entirely do good. You know, if you, if, you, if you find and cultivate new talent, then you can get new talent very cheap early on. Um, but I think it is a genuine um, desire to actually find that new talent and cultivate it. It's the same with you guys. I think when you're booking for a local show, you like to book local artists as well, people that people can relate to. And, and you know, people are like, oh my God, yeah, DJ Shadow's lived here forever. We're totally going to go and see him in San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the, the DJs that were coming out and just kind of going and plugging and playing, they're now creating, you know, they're, they're touring with live bands. They're bringing in a singer that's going to go along with them that's going to add to that experiential moment that you're like, I remember when I saw, for example, Pretty Lights play on New Year's for like four hours in Denver with a live band. And so, you know, and Grammatics going on tour with, you know, uh, Elliot, or tour in Europe, I believe, with um, Elliot Lip, a, a trombone player. And, you know, they're bringing the live elements to, to their music, which is going to add to that experiential moment when you go and see them live and you remember you saw them at the Warfield and they stopped and they took a minute to appreciate San Francisco and they took a, a minute to appreciate you. It wasn't just a constant four-hour track list that went on and on and on. So hopefully that's given you guys a good uh, insight into what kind of issues are happening, how we're thinking about things, how the landscape's changing. We have 15 minutes, so I wanted to open up the floor to some questions. So um, I was wondering, too, like, because, um, you know, like, it's, with this electronic dance music um, thing going on, uh, it's... With electronic dance music going on, um, you know, you kind of think about trends, music trends. You know, you had disco in the 70s, hair metal in the 80s, and, you know, they won't last. So I was wondering for, the, you know, all the festival promoters, if they have, like, some kind of contingency plan just in case, you know, this so-called EDM bubble <laughs> bursts. I don't, I don't think so, but I, I was just thinking about the fact that electronic music is obviously born in tech, right? And we're in the middle of the technology, a technology revolution. We have been, you know, and I think that this is something that's going to continue on as technology innovates for both the ways that you make the music, the ways that you perform the music, and the ways that you market the music. Mm-hmm. And that's, and, and all of these, these guys that are superstars like Calvin Harris and Skrillex and even Pretty Lights and 
they're they're innovative in the way that they perform, in the mm-hmm. way that they market, in the way that they connect with their fans, in the way that they use social media. And as long as the tech industry is evolving in a way that the electronic music industry can utilize it, this thing is going to keep growing, I think. Yeah, I think, I think we're in a really unusual... I think we're almost in a period like the Industrial Revolution. There has never been a time when it's easier to create and share and collaborate music. So whether you're a kid who's grown up listening to, like Porter Robinson, grew up playing video games, literally bought Fruity Loops because he wanted to recreate the sound on his... Um, on his Nintendo games and now he's doing a world tour he's just released an album Um, you have kids who are sat in their rooms and they are creating music every single day they're sharing it on SoundCloud they're collaborating on on platforms like Spice and they are creating music with kids across the world there's no longer barriers to entry like your mom and dad have to pay you to to have guitar lessons or piano lessons it's incredibly easy to create music a lot of people are creating music electronically I think it's a fallacy to say that this is a bubble and it's going to burst. I think there are more and more artists coming up from every different genre who are collaborating collaborating electronically. And like I said, I've, I grew up listening to electronic music when I was 16 years old. I'm now 14. That's 24 years later. This thing's been going on for a long, long time. And I don't yeah, know, it just like, finally hit you know, the public... You know, it's just mainstream now, and that's the difference. I don't think that we're anywhere close to close to a bubble bursting. Whether or not a bubble will burst, we'll hopefully we'll all find out and see. But I mean, it's just all growing right now. That's what's happening. Is it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. So it's, it's gone mainstream because of technology. It's gone mainstream because yeah. you no longer have to go to a vinyl shop and crate dig or know the right underground party to go to to listen to a DJ. You know, these guys are mainstream now. But it's great that there are still DJs who do play vinyl and all of that. Yes. You know, I mean, there's 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 a lot just depending on what kind of electronic music or dance music whatever you want to call it there's something out there really for everyone within that genre you know you it it isn't just superstar djs so hopefully that's not what everybody sees there's a lot of other stuff that's out there that's great that isn't you know the calvin harris afrojacks of the world right so that's kind of the problem with the word like edm because it means or at least when people think of that word it means it used to mean something different than it kind of means now at least within the industry I mean this this question of like is it going to burst or what's the contingency plan kind of drives me nuts to be honest with you because uh you just say yes. are slow. <laughs> you know, like, it's not like you're going to wake up one day and, like, it's going to be gone, right? It's going to be a slow transition, most likely. I mean, the, the pace of these cycles is definitely increasing, you know, musical cycles. I mean, dubstep, for example, for those of you who are into that, it came in really hot for a little while, and then it kind of, like, faded out. But even that process took, like, nine months, 12 months longer. So the other, the other major point is, so the, the point of that is, like, you'll know when it's happening, if it's changing. You'll be able to see that, and you'll be able to adjust to it before it's gone, right? Second thing is... Most music is now electronic music, at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. We're using electronic p- tools to create no matter what. So to what extent it is electronically created, that's up to you to decide or for you as a creative person to you know, spend your time on. Like the d- new Daft Punk album is a great example. It sounds acoustic-y, but it's definitely electronic, right? Mm-hmm. And like, right. we have a much wider spectrum between you know, here and there now than we ever did. Yeah, I run an online calendar and event uh, marketing company called The A-List. And um, one of the things that I've been noticing as a trend, um, since we promote most of all the festivals and major events in, on the West Coast, is that people are, our fan base, we've got about 150,000 members, and there's this, 
there's this rise of festivals that are shooting for the, the Coachella, the lightning in a bottle. And then there's a, a large fan base of people who are really looking for more intimacy. But the promoters tend to want to keep increasing the size of their festival. And the DJs keep wanting to increase the size of how much they're getting paid. And so there's this really difficult area where you're actually making money. And I know most of the festival producers I work with don't make money. And there's always this fine line of struggle. And any little variance can really cost hundreds of thousands of dollars on the bottom line. And so I'm noticing like the Enchanted Forest model, which really is kind of this growing niche of people who just want a thousand people in the forest, intimate, everybody knows each other, one stage, uh, you don't need to have the huge acts because what they want is community. And so I'm wondering where, as Andrew, you, you especially, where do you guys find is your fine niche and where do you feel like you know, if you hit this number, it works, but this number isn't. And, you know, how are you going to adjust for that in the future? Yeah, definitely. And, no, it's, I mean, and that's the trend in Northern California as well that we see there's more. I mean, every single weekend there's a camping festival, mm-hmm. you know. And one of, the, one of the unique things that we have with Northern Nights is the property itself will kind of make – it'll set those numbers, right? When, when we – you know, this year we're going we're gonna, to, you know, try to double and we're going to try to, to – you know, do it the right way and, and, and have the team grow with it as well. But the property itself and the river and the environment will kind of, from, from past experiences that we've learned about through Reggae Rising, Reggae on the River, and just kind of doing our homework as we got into the, the festival industry, you know, there is that fine line of when people kind of get greedy and they want to go bigger and they're like, hey, let's spend more money on talent or let's spend more money on you know production and and they forget about the community as you said that they've kind of built and so coming into our second year the biggest thing is that we're going to do the best best of our ability to kind of to set the infrastructure and set the acts and and invite the right people that will come there and kind of make that identity so for us it's just it's really on a year-to-year basis and you know we really we really pride ourselves on making sure that we stay within our budget and that if if an act comes back and says they want fifty thousand dollars we're like well we just can't do that this year we're we're about the experience so we're trying to bring people up there and get them to know about the site by some of the acts and some of the the uh the media that we do but i believe like really it's going to be the property itself that's going to say hey you know what three thousand people is the is the cap and we're going to see that and we're going to you know stop ticket sales and kind of make sure that it doesn't get out of control as as it as it's happened in the past and maybe you do a two weekend like coachella well i think it really depends on what your end goal is it's like if you want to start a startup you, you should probably have an exit strategy if you want to start a lifestyle business your exit strategy could be just run your lifestyle business for the rest of your life if you're trying to build a festival that you want to sell to sfx you've got to go bigger every year mm-hmm. that's what they're looking at year over year growth if you want an intimate community event there's plenty of opportunity, infinite opportunity in the U.S. and worldwide for those kinds of events that thrive. You're talking about 1,000 people. But I, also, I think there's also the ability to have growing revenues with an intimate event because you can grow the demand every year. You mm-hmm. can increase the ticket price a little bit based on the demand, and you can start to monetize via merchandise I and online got- activations mm-hmm. and streaming and whatever else. And sponsorships, because once you get a really hardcore of people going back year after year who are engaged with the brand the whole year round then the sponsorship dollars start coming as well so I think with with tech the opportunity with tech you can have 
the small space and it's not just the be all end all those three days you've got an audience that's engaged throughout the year with you and so then you start to monetize that through brand marketing and really get the sponsorship dollars in I think also operationally, if you can figure out the perfect formula to craft this intimate experience and you can duplicate that without losing any kind of integrity, mm-hmm. that's another way to kind of expand your business. Next question. Well, I don't want to cut you guys off, but I do have a question. Um, my name is Lori Kirby. I run a conference for music festivals, which Michael knows about. And um, we have a lot of Live Nation people there as well. So... Two questions. One, we start to talk about the trends. So obviously, you know, the LED lights were the first thing. Now we're talking about incorporating live music. What else do you see on the horizon? And two, um, because I deal with so many different types of festivals, EDM really gets picked on by the media. Um, what's, how, how are you guys handling that? I mean, there's, I think there's way, it's blown way out of proportion, the whole attention to, to the drug scene. So... Give me some insight into how you guys deal with those. Well, I eat Saturday Night Live, <laughs> you know, which, you know, it's, it, it, <laughs> I think you would call that a bit of like low hanging fruit, you know, to a certain degree. It's e- anything that's easy to pick on is going to get picked on. Mm-hmm. And being a promoter who's promoted a lot of electronic music, obviously the drug scene is very much so something that's brought up over and over again. And I'll tell you, anytime I'm promoting a show that has DJs, my police bills are always more. And like to a extreme degree and something as a promoter that really cares about the safety of your fans, you have to go into that knowledgeable what you're getting yourself into. And for us, we make sure that, you know, you have a lot of extra medical and all that there in case that is what's going on. And we, you know, pride ourselves on always producing a very safe event. Um, I think that you have to build those relationships within your community. And I'll tell you now, rather than three years ago, my police presence is a lot less than it was then because you build that trust with the police. You build that trust with your community that you are providing the necessary tools within your own event to make it safe for the kids that are going to be there. But that said, you're right. There's a lot of light shown, like a lot of, you know, eyes on EDM. But I don't think that, actually I know for a fact that, uh, you know, festivals like Coachella or Bonnaroo Road, all of those, they do also have as many issues as the EDM festivals because the eyes are there. That's what it's focused on. But you have to be aware of what you're dealing with and you have to be able to manage it. Yeah, I think you can't, no matter how many security um, gates you put in, no matter how much you search people, no matter how much you educate people, if people are going to take drugs, they're going to take drugs. You cannot stop Absolutely. them. And they will neck it outside and they'll neck all of their drugs outside. And then that really causes the problem inside. So what you can do is manage it through having great security there, great medical staff, you know, great police, people watching out. When I was at Electric Zoo, yeah, was, did it, was it Electric Zoo that got closed down last year? Yeah. Those guys could not do enough. It was searingly hot. They had people walking around in the crowd, handing out bottles of water to people. They had people hosing down the kids at the front who hadn't moved, like, and making sure water got back to them. They couldn't have done enough, but you can't tar an industry with a number of really unfortunate, really sad incidents. I don't think it's fair um, because I think we have to go above and beyond and we have to hold ourselves out as being a standard for the industry because we're the ones that get all the stick when something happens. And so we, we have gone above and beyond. Um, I think what's up next in festivals? I want to see more drones. I want to see a shitload of drones doing crazy stuff. <laughs> I want my beer delivered by drone. I want cameras on drones. I want <laughs> artists on drones. Um, lots of drones. Um, and um, I think there's going to be a lot more, what you said before, um, I want a lot more audience interactivity, whether that's, you know, I think Coldplay had, had some crazy bands where when they played, all the bands changed in the audience. I think that's going to be a huge tech push over the next couple of years. Um, maybe live animals, I don't know. 
<laughs> like or, organic activations with sponsors is going to be a hot topic yeah. in the next 12 months. We've been talking a lot about live shows, but Mike also touched on live stream. And with Twitch, there's obviously a lot of buzz on, on streaming. Uh, do you guys think artists are going to move more into streaming experiences, whether it's at concerts or in, you know, in the privacy of their studio? And do you think there's going to be uh, more opportunities to monetize, you know, to get that scale, whether it's subscriptions or virtual goods via live video interaction between artists and fans? Can you guys just chat about that? I think this is your territory, yeah. but I, I definitely, my answer is yes. And I think that this is. Sure. So, I mean, the, the bottom line is different things work for different people. And I think creating a new category that could lead to success is great. Um, having, you know, as an artist, having this new way to reach a massive audience and kind of, you know, creating a persona around yourself uh, is, could be a really powerful tool. There's this one uh, really, really popular DJ named DJ Blend, where he basically like put on a mask and like mixed and danced around his room and he got like 3 million subscribers on on YouTube and ended up getting booked in the festival circuit and that was his like path so I think yes it is definitely a growing medium there's a lot more viewership um, more and more concerts are coming online every month uh, in, in, in my business we're focused a lot on the festival side and kind of creating immersive engaging experiences around massive events but there's also a side of it that's kind of like the smaller artists and how can they also create more intimate experiences with their fan base and kind of cultivate that community. Same kind of topics we've been talking about. I think we're going to see a lot of progress in that direction. This year. Also opening up an untapped revenue stream, right? right. Yeah. I mean, Lots of untapped revenue streams. But do you think like, there'll be mass online festivals? Like are you a fan of Stageit? Are you a fan of those types of companies that are doing this? Yeah, I, I think Stage is doing great. And I think uh, the model of tipping artists for their performance online is mm-hmm. something that could be really viable. I mean, they're making great money and artists are pretty happy. So yeah, any, any other additional way for that to proliferate, I think is, is some, definitely something we're going to support. We're going to be part of that. You'll see us getting in that game this year <laughs> yeah people love watching like who expected that the like biggest place to consume music would be youtube and it's all music videos people love watching visuals with their with their audio and so being able to watch artists play with visuals even if you just sat in your in your living room with a bunch of friends drinking or whatever like people want to play music videos or people want to put on an archive of a live stream because it's just I don't know it must be something in the human brain maybe I need to study psychology more people really like that stuff <laughs> so very popular um, yeah I think it's just going to get more and more like if I, I can't I don't have the time or the money or quite frankly the, the mental fortitude to go to every single festival I want to go to but I would definitely watch it online if I'm not there like if there was a live stream of Burning Man I'd probably you know I really want to see art department in the desert but I don't want to that much to go to the desert to see art department um so yeah I think that platforms like ours are really enabling artists to actually get significant revenues from participating in that sort of thing that's all the time we have guys thank you very much for coming thank you panelists